Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our prostate cancer series, this time shifting our attention to metastatic disease. Yeah, excited to get into this one today. This is going to be a lot of information that we're going to go through. We're going to go through the history of how we got to the trials we're at today. And this episode is really going to primarily focus on castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer. I'm glad we're doing this too. It really, this whole series has revealed how little I manage prostate cancer on a regular basis just because I did not think that there was this much to talk about, but we really do cover a lot. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, no, I feel like I have a greater appreciation for the things that we do after preparing for this series. And so I'm excited for our listeners to feel the same way if they don't feel so already. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys. So in the spirit of holidays, as we've been sort of discussing over the last few episodes, I'm curious what your top uh, item on your on your wish list is this year. That's tough. You know, I already feel like I have pretty much one of everything I want, uh, which is a cool situation to be in. I guess I would really like to get some six inch cake pans. The cake pans I have right now are pretty big and it's just a lot of cake to handle for two people. Well, I guess we were going to get Dan some six-inch cake pans. I didn't think that was going to be the, the biggest wish list. But honestly, I agree that I can't really think of exactly what I want, which makes my wife kind of really annoyed at me because she's like, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm like, I don't know, whatever. And then she always ends up finding something that I actually really like. So I don't know. I truly don't know what I want for Christmas at this point. I feel the exact same way. And I was just having this discussion with my wife and my parents this past weekend. I was like, I also feel like I have everything because I buy things as soon as I need them and don't really wait for the holidays like I used to. The only thing I could think of was a new pair of workout sneakers that I kindly suggested my brother get for me. So that is the only thing that I have uh, asked anybody to get me. But we'll see what else Santa brings this year. You guys, in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the ins and outs of prostate cancer from all different aspects with different guests on our show. We also spent an episode discussing M0 prostate cancer management. Um, And this time, it's time to get into that metastatic prostate cancer management. And I'm sure this is going to be another fantastic episode for our listeners as well. So I guess, Vivek, you have another case for us if you want to kick us off with that one. All right. So we have a 65-year-old male history of BPH who presented to his primary care doctor with worsening urinary frequency. He had a PSA drawn, which was elevated at 55. He was referred to urology and underwent an MRI with prostate biopsy. His pathology showed prostate adenocarcinoma that was Gleason 5 plus 4 and 6 out of 12 cores. He also notably had invasion into the seminal vesicle. Given his very high-risk disease, he underwent staging imaging with a gallium PSMA PET-CT, which was notable for metastatic disease with two bone lesions in his T5 and L3 spine areas. He's then referred to our medical oncology clinic for management of his metastatic disease. So let's start off with how would you guys think about approaching patients with metastatic prostate cancer and specifically our patient we have here? Well, first, uh, I just want to recap a few key features that this patient had that kind of push him into that very high-risk category. We've talked about these in our prior episodes in more detail if you want to go back and review. 
He has a PSA that's greater than 20. Remember, we think about the double-digit dollar bills when we're coming up with our thresholds, so 10 and 20. It's a quick way to stratify low risk below 10, intermediate in between 10 and 20, and high risk above 20. And you can just imagine Andrew Jackson bouncing on that horse and obliterating his prostate. That is, he's on the $20 bill. That is the high-risk threshold. He's got extraprostatic extension, which is also considered high-risk. And he's got the combined Gleason score of 8 or higher. So with many of those features kind of combining together, he's definitely in that very high risk group. We don't really even need to look it up at this point. But like we discussed in our previous episode, if he'd had no metastatic disease and had planned EBRT for his very high risk prostate cancer, then we would want to be treating him with adjuvant abiraterone and prednisone for two years based on the results of that stampede trial. They saw an improvement in metastasis-free survival by about 10% with the addition of those drugs. Here, however, our imaging workup showed that we do have a patient with metastatic disease at the time of presentation. And whenever you're faced with that situation, there are two key questions you should ask yourself. Is this castrate-sensitive or castrate-resistant metastatic disease? And is this high-volume or low-volume metastatic disease? These two questions are sort of going to guide how you make your next steps in management. The last key thing to keep in mind is that metastatic prostate cancer is associated with homologous recombination repair gene mutations. Kind of a mouthful, but this is something that we're starting to see now as a, an actionable thing in more and more cancers. There are a few studies that have looked at the incidence of these mutations in metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, Ronick, do you want to take us through those real quick? So one of these studies included about 700 men with metastatic prostate cancer, and this was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016. And as always, we'll have a link to this in our show notes. But what this study showed was that the incidence of germline mutations was a little over 10% in that cohort of patients. In the Cancer Genome Atlas Prostate Cancer Study, which mainly included men with high-risk prostate cancer, comprising over 90% of the cohort, so the majority of these patients, there they found an incidence of roughly 5%. And so for this reason, germline BRCA testing is recommended for men with metastatic prostate cancer, men with very high-risk prostate cancer, those with high-risk prostate cancer, and prostate cancer with regional nodal involvement. So essentially, patients with high-risk features, we are going to consider testing Testing them for BRCA, that BRCA mutation, understanding that there are targetable treatment options for these patients. It's always good to know where the data is coming from for this genetic testing. And at the end of this series, we are going to have a conversation on genetic testing in cancer patients. So look forward to that. So in our patient, because of the fact that he presented with metastatic disease, he did have genetic counseling conducted and he had germline BRCA testing that was sent and it came back normal. So for our patient, we know that this is de novo metastatic prostate cancer. So as far as we know, he never had a diagnosis of prostate cancer before. And the first time it's presenting, he has evidence of metastatic disease. And so he has not had any prior ADT therapy. If he did have prior ADT or he was on ADT, remember the first thing we want to do is check a testosterone level. And if that testosterone level is less than 50 and this patient still has evidence of disease, then we are going to deem this patient castration resistant. He has castration sensitive metastatic prostate cancer in the case of our patient. So one of the things that Dan mentioned when he was 
introducing some of the highlights about how we think about these cases is the terms high volume and low volume metastatic disease. So guys, can you define what this term means? Because I certainly don't know exactly how to quantify that, even though I hear people using this term all the time. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. High volume disease is defined by one of the following. The presence of visceral metastases or four or more bone metastases with one beyond the vertebral bodies and pelvis, so outside of the axial skeleton. This is essentially the criteria defined for a subgroup analysis of an older trial related to metastatic disease that uh, Vivek's going to talk about in a little bit. The distinction is critically important when we think about when to incorporate triplet therapy with something like androgen deprivation therapy, docetaxel, and abiraterone prednisone. So it just it does make some important distinction for treatment later on. So based on what Vivek mentioned in the introduction, our patient by definition then has low volume disease, given the fact that he only had two bone lesions and doesn't have any evidence of visceral disease, thankfully. So in this case, how should we think about treating this patient with low volume, castrate sensitive metastatic disease? Before we get into that management, we'll all three together discuss some of the data and the new trials. I'm going to do the thing that our listeners probably hate, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is take us through a historical context of what's gone on in prostate cancer. So the big thing to know is that we knew that these prostate cancer cells were driven by testosterone binding to the androgen receptor. So back in the 1940s, the idea was, well, what if we just do orchiectomy, get rid of the testosterone, do these patients do better? And they did. There was tumor shrinkage, the patients did better, and this idea of castration became the standard of care in prostate cancer. Subsequently, we had this androgen deprivation therapy in the form of an LHRH agonist, which was obviously a maybe more ideal alternative treatment option than actually going through a surgery for these men with metastatic prostate cancer, and this became a common treatment used for patients. Then let's fast forward. We have the late 70s and 80s. There were novel drugs created because the idea was, well, for some reason, that androgen receptor is still signaling. Even though we're getting rid of the testosterone, there must be something there. So what if we just have an antagonist to that receptor? Can we stop it signaling? And there were multiple novel non-steroidal anti-androgen receptor antagonists developed. All these end in amide. So it started with flutamide. And then there was a few others that during that time, we progressed then to bicalutamide or casadex, which you might still hear being used for some patients. Then we had enzalutamide, then apalutamide, and now we have another one called darlutamide, costing $14,700 a month, just for everybody to know. So there were several trials conducted in the 1980s and 1990s looking at the concept of maximum androgen blockade, which meant that we're going to castrate these patients with either surgery or an LHRH agonist and additionally add one of these androgen receptor antagonists. So again, these are older trials, 80s and 90s. There was a meta-analysis of 27 trials done by the Prostate Cancer Collaborative Trialist Group in 2000 that showed the benefit of this idea of maximal blockade with older androgen receptor antagonists. And it showed that the overall survival benefit at five years was very modest at about only 3%, and they couldn't exclude that there was a 0% difference. So very minimal benefit. Around that same time, though, bicalutamide was developed, and also known as Casadex, and people thought, well, maybe this will be better than those older generation drugs when combined with ADT monotherapy. So standard of care from that early 2000s time point really was ADT plus or minus bicalutamide was the first line option for men with metastatic prostate cancer. 
Patients who ended up progressing on ADT were thought to be castrate resistant. They were thought to have these mutations in their androgen receptor on their prostate cancer cells that were driving through and leading to cancer cell proliferation despite blocking it with some of these antagonists. So the only option left at that point was chemotherapy. The first chemotherapy agent used was an anthracycline called mitoxantrone, very toxic. In the mid-90s, it was compared to prednisone alone and really just helped palliate patients. There wasn't a huge overall survival benefit, which is kind of interesting. Then we had this drug, this taxane docetaxel, and there was a really important phase three trial called TAX327 published in 2004 that compared docetaxel versus mitoxantrone and said docetaxel superior. And this is how docetaxel became incorporated into metastatic prostate cancer in the later line settings. So then we had, well, what happens after you progress on docetaxel and all this ADT stuff? What do you do then? We had mitoxantrone, and that, again, was very toxic. So then we had a new taxane called cabazitaxel, which showed promising efficacy in cell lines that were resistant to docetaxel. So this new drug, cabazitaxel. And there was cabazitaxel versus mitoxantrone after progression on docetaxel, and there was an overall survival benefit. So that led to cabazitaxel becoming the standard of care after progression on ADT and chemo. And that's going to be an important therapy to know when we think about control arm patients for our next episode. We think about the later and later lines of therapy. So this really sets the stage for our modern trials using newer generation oral antiandrogen medications with ADT and the use of first-line chemotherapy. That was a great recap, and it is very important to understand all of this context. Keep in mind that chemotherapy does have good activity in prostate cancer, and even something like cabezitaxel can still be used in later lines of therapy, which will be important as we discuss the limitations of some of the current studies in this space. And just to remind our listeners, we have a patient with castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer and low-volume disease. Our treatment backbone will always include androgen deprivation therapy, or ADT. In addition to ADT, we now have several drugs approved, including docetaxel, enzalutamide, apalutamide, and abiraterone plus prednisone. You will see the triplet therapy, including ADT, docetaxel, darolutamide, or abipred, is listed in the NCCN guidelines for all comers with castrate-sensitive disease, but we'll discuss why that's not indicated for the patients with low-volume disease. So I did just go through a bunch of options. What are the pros and cons of each of these approaches? So there are a few key studies that we want to highlight for the first-line treatment of castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer. The first thing that you want to know is that all these studies compared a newer option to ADT monotherapy rather than comparing to each other, which is why there's a lot of approvals, right? So they were saying, how does this compare to ADT monotherapy? Another important fact is that all these drugs had proven survival benefit in the castrate resistance setting and in later lines before trying to move it up in the first line as a first line option. This is also not a novel concept in oncology, right? If something works well in later line settings, we always want to see, is it work better and better if we try to move it up in terms of treatment options? So this is something that I'm sure all of you have heard before. So let's all first start with the chemotherapy alone. Remember how docetaxel had beat mitoxantrone and prednisone to become the standard of care in the second line. So naturally, we want to try and push it to the first line. So initially, there were a few negative trials. However, a majority of patients in these studies had lower volume of disease. There was a pivotal phase three trial called CHARTED that was published in 2015. 
So CHARTED stood for Chemohormonal Therapy versus Androgen Ablation Randomized Trial for Extensive Disease in Prostate Cancer. And patients were randomized to either ADT monotherapy or ADT plus docetaxel for six cycles. The key was that patients were stratified also by their volume of disease, so either high volume or low volume disease at the time of randomization. There was an improved overall survival by about 10 months with the use of docetaxel for patients with high volume disease, but in patients with low volume disease, there was actually no difference in survival. So the advantage of this approach is that it is a fixed duration of therapy without the need to take indefinite therapy with enzalutamide, apalutamide, or abiraterone and prednisone. This idea of high volume disease becomes a key subgroup for all trials moving forward. After that, we had the approval of abiraterone plus ADT, and that came from two trials. Remember, this is the drug that blocks androgen synthesis at the level of the adrenal glands and requires prednisone to prevent mineralocorticoid excess. That's why we always say those two together. There was the latitude trial and the stampede trial. So the latitude trial was a phase three randomized control trial that compared ADT monotherapy versus ADT plus abipred. Published in the New England Journal, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. There was an improvement in three-year overall survival by about 15% in terms of absolute improvement. So it went from 50% three-year overall survival to 65% in the abipred plus ADT arm compared to the ADT monotherapy. There's one huge issue with this result, though, and results from subsequent studies that we'll discuss due to very poor rates of post-progression therapy. So these folks weren't necessarily given that ADT plus abipred once they progressed. And just keep in mind that when we have a drug that's already approved in later line and we're trying to push it up earlier, we can't really answer the question of is this better upfront or better later on unless folks are getting standard of care after progression, which would be the addition of those drugs that are already approved for later line. So that's just one issue with the trial design here. And in this study, less than 25% of patients in the control arm received what we would consider appropriate post-progression therapy. And you might ask yourself, well, how is this possible? This is kind of one of the downfalls of major multi-center, multi-country trials because this trial was run in multiple countries and several countries did not have access to these drugs that were approved in later lines due to their extreme cost. It showed that abiraterone plus ADT did have an overall survival advantage compared to no access to abiraterone, but that's, again, not really standard of care. We did talk about Stampede a little bit in our previous episode and how it was this fairly complicated multi-stage, multi-arm platform trial. It gave us a ton of practice-changing results in prostate cancer, and this was the one that had that control arm that constantly accrued and had patients randomized to it, as well as multiple comparator arms of different therapies. I think it went all the way up to arm M, uh, if you can believe it. Among the many arms in this trial, there was a docetaxel plus ADT arm compared to ADT alone in the metastatic setting, which showed improved overall survival again. But this trial had a docetaxel plus ADT arm compared to the ADT alone in the metastatic setting, which showed improved overall survival, but again, it was limited to high volume disease. There was also an abipred plus ADT compared to ADT alone in the stampede trial, which again, just one of the many arms. And post-progression 
therapy was again a limitation here. 73% of patients got any therapy added after progression in the ADT monotherapy arm, and very few patients got either abiraterone or enzalutamide for subsequent therapy. So again, difficult to answer the question, does it improve things to start this up front? Suffice to say, abiraterone is a reasonable option as it's less toxic than docetaxel, but comes at the cost of an indefinite therapy for either high volume or low volume disease. And then we had two trials for the androgen receptor antagonists, enzalutamide and apalutamide. Not surprisingly, these were compared to ADT monotherapy. Both drugs had an overall survival benefit over ADT alone. The problem was we don't know what these patients got post-progression. Only 25% of patients got subsequent hormonal therapy in the ADT control arm of the apalutamide trial. So again, yes, these drugs are showing good benefit when combined to ADT, but we have never answered the sequential question of what happens if you just add something like apalutamide or enzalutamide at progression on ADT monotherapy. The interesting thing was if you looked at preventing symptomatic disease progression, the benefits were much more modest. There was less of a drastic improvement in benefit. There still was, which is why we still do this as standard of care. We're just making the larger points as we think about trials in the future. We should really be thinking about this post-progression therapy. These drugs are really effective and are really great in our standard of care for patients, but we just wanted to highlight those points to our listeners. Honestly, never before preparation for this series that I ever really think about what the comparator arms are for a lot of these studies. And it studies are really important. They have a very important role in how we decide what we are going to treat our patients with. But I think as I'm seeing more and more, especially for a cancer as common as prostate cancer, it really does make you scratch your head a little bit and take a step back and see, you know, will the day ever come where we have more head-to-head comparisons about these different options? Because right now it's sort of just dealer's choice when it comes to how we approach. And it's, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast, anybody listening to this podcast rather that treats prostate cancer probably has institutional differences about how they approach this. And no one's right or wrong. It just happens to be because there are so many options. So guys, we just went through a thorough discussion about, especially about low volume disease. And so what about our patients with high volume castrate sensitive metastatic disease? What is the data when it comes to selecting the appropriate regimen? We did talk about docetaxel and ADT as an option, but what else can we do? Treatment for the patients with high volume castrate sensitive metastatic prostate cancer involves the use of triplet therapy, and there are two trials that answer this question. Trial number one was called PEACE-1 that looked at ADT plus docetaxel plus abipred versus ADT plus docetaxel. And the other trial was called Aricins, which was the same design, except instead of abipred, it was using that newer generation anti-androgen receptor antagonist, darolutamide. So two triplet therapies against the standard of care arm, which was ADT plus docetaxel. The interesting thing about PEACE-1 is that they amended their protocol, actually, when Charted came out to change the ADT monotherapy arm to ADT plus docetaxel. So that's great. They actually were trying to answer the question compared to standard of care. Now the standard of care that we're using, what if we added one of these agents to it? In PEACE-1, there was an overall survival benefit limited to the high-volume disease group. Patients with low-volume metastatic disease did not benefit from triplet therapy, not surprisingly. The Aricins trial, which included, again, darolutamide plus docetaxel plus ADT, showed an overall survival benefit in the entire population, 
but they didn't do a subgroup analysis looking at the difference between high-volume and low-volume metastatic disease. Why is that important? Well, if you really think about it, chart it. The trial done with docetaxel monotherapy and ADT versus ADT alone, we found no difference in low-volume metastatic disease. So why would a triplet therapy make that any different? Some people would think, are we curing these patients? But realistically, if we have another triplet trial that says, no, that's not what's happening, the fact of the matter is using a triplet therapy in low-volume disease doesn't make too much sense, and that Arison's trial should have reported that. So now we have these two trials, though, that did show an overall survival benefit. There's likely this benefit in the high-volume disease patients. So which one do we choose? We prefer, and the fellow on call is not preferring one regimen or another, but our institution here at Rouleau prefers the use of Abipred purely because it's a cheaper drug and we have more experience with it. We think about Abipred, it's much cheaper than darolutamide, which we alluded to $14,700 a month for that therapy. And again, the PEACE-1 trial was just run a little bit smarter. So I think that this really sets up a really nice framework for us to approach our patients with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer, especially in particular those patients who are castrate sensitive. So just to sort of recap what we've discussed here, I think this is just the key takeaways, at least what I'm taking away from all this is, first of all, a reminder to go back and check out our previous episodes about how we talk about high-risk features about patients with prostate cancer. But when we have patients with metastatic disease, we do need to ask ourselves two important questions. Is this castration-sensitive or castrate-resistant metastatic disease? And as Dan had alluded to, we also want to define high-volume versus low-volume metastatic disease because that is going to be how we approach our patients. So in particular, in this episode, we focus on those castrate sensitive patients. And so we talked about good data supporting the use of things like docetaxel for patients with high volume disease. And while that is still effective in patients with lower volume disease, we have several other options that we can consider using as well. So take a look at the data that we will also include in our show notes. Take a listen to this episode one more time. Talk to others at your institution to see what your institutional practices are, just to understand why they do what they do. But hopefully from this episode, you can gain an appreciation for the multiple options there are that are available. We don't know if one is necessarily better than the other when it comes to some of these more novel agents. But nonetheless, it's important to be aware that options are available and also have an approach to how we select one regimen over another. Guys, any final thoughts that you all have? I thought that was great. The big thing is that we have this triplet therapy for those high-volume patients who are fit. We're not saying that every patient can get triplet therapy. It's still toxic. High-volume patients who are fit, they can get triplet therapy. Docetaxel monotherapy is still a reasonable option, and we have all these other options. So I think, Ronick, you summarized it great there. Yeah, and I think my big takeaway, in addition to all that, is like many of us have referenced here, I think all three of us have at some point, read papers, talk about papers, read the editorials, discuss all that with your colleagues. Don't just take stuff at face value. These papers drive our practice, but we have to understand what they're really saying. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.